another came over and over again. So we're going to spend last week and this week looking at this characteristic of love. And my hope is that you're not sitting there going, Bill, we got this. Uh, we, we got it. We know how to love. Now, the reason I know that we don't know how to love well is our abuse of the word of love. We love ice cream. We love football. We love going to the beach. Uh, we love to do this, that, and the other. And then we're supposed to look at our spouses and our children and go, we love you too. And so they're probably looking and going, well, where is that on the scale? Is that before or after golf? Before or after football, before or after going to the club, before or after. Where do I fit in that? Because you're using the same word. Well, what we need to understand is the use, the singular powerful use of the word love within our lives and what that means for us. What does it look like? What does it motivate us to do? And last week we talked a little bit and we started with the bad news first. We said that Paul was challenging us in 1 Corinthians 13 that he said a couple of things. He said, one, you need to grow up. He said, you need to mature in your approach to love. He said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I acted like a child. I was a kid. That was my entire paradigm and outlook on life. That was how I approached the world. But now that I'm a man, I've put away childish things, and I'm approaching the world, and I'm approaching life, and I'm approaching love as a man, as an adult as a mature person. Therefore, I approach it differently. We joked around and said, you put two 18-month-old kids in a room with one toy, what are you going to find? That love is just a natural thing within all of humanity, right? Please, I would love for you to have this dump truck. I will set aside my wants, hopes, and passions and desires so that yours can be accomplished through my sacrificial gift to you. Of course not. And guess what we are? We're just grown-up 18-month-olds. Because the world still revolves around us when we approach it from that immature way. And Paul also said, uh, the bad news is that you don't know everything yet. That it's clouded and it's imperfect and you don't know it. And you're always going to be growing and you're always going to be maturing. And you're always going to be pressing forward. So you should never be satisfied uh, with the simple things. He goes, don't be satisfied with milk. But move on to the deeper and more profound things. Move on to the more complex things. Move on to, to different ways to love. Christ said, it's easy to love those who love you. But that's, that's for children. The hard, maturing, grown-up, stake kind of love is to love the person who hates your guts. To love the person who grates on you. When you see them entering into your zip code, you feel it. And you're like, oh. And you just go, oh, no. Paul's saying that's the kind of love that you should be moved towards. Because think about it, who needs milk? Someone who's very young or someone who's sick. It used to be that when you were sick and your stomach was upset, put a little, take a little warm milk. So Paul's really chastising and saying, hey, it's only for sick people and for little babies that have milk. We need to move on to the deeper and more profound things. And so he challenges us in that, and he was telling us that we need to grow uh, in our love and those characteristics of love and those qualities of love and the things about love. And this week we're going to pick up uh, on his, um, his friend and his fellow uh, pastor and apostle, John, uh, who was uh, writing and who was pastoring. And when he wrote 1 John 3 and 4, he talked an awful lot about love. He spoke in chapter 4, and he used the word love in chapter 4 more than Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 13. And so we're going to look, and it's a little bit of an extended passage, so uh, I hope you'll, you'll bear with me. But here's my firm belief, that this is the word of God. 
and therefore it has power to change our lives just in the listening and hearing of it, that his spirit is at work through his word into our hearts. So let us with reverence listen to God's word. This first is 1 John 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. But do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And now moving forward to chapter 4 in John's continued treatise on love and affection. Beloved, beginning in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is the love of God, who made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved him, but that God, that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have, so we have come to know and to believe that love, the love that God has for us, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. What do you think John's trying to communicate? You don't, it, it doesn't take a lot for John to basically be saying, folks, we have, and we have an issue with love. And you have to get into the mind of the writer, the mind of the pastor. Why would John, prompted by the Holy Spirit, write this letter to his church? 
Could it possibly be that they had issues with loving one another? Could it possibly be that he was uh, led by the Spirit and intuitive enough as the pastor who knew his people to write it to the church and say, listen, you're going to be good at a lot of things. You're going to have wonderful professions. You're going to be able to write little confessions out there, and people are going to use them 500 years later, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be wonderful, and you're going to have programs, and you're going to do all of this stuff. But if you don't have love, biblical, Christian, God-defined love, Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. So he was coming back and coming back and coming back again. And one of the things that he teaches us, and the first point today is this, what is our motivation to love? What's our motivation to love? What is John setting out in front of us to motivate us and to move us to love? Now, motivations are a huge thing. And most of us don't deal with them well. We're incredibly keen on determining other people's motivations, right? That person didn't smile at me. Therefore, this. Uh, that person's going slow uh, in front of me. Therefore, this. Uh, this person hurt me in this way. Therefore, their intentions, their motives. Was, it's amazing at how good we are at determining everybody else's motives. But when I sit with people and I ask simple questions like this, why do you do that? Why didn't you do this? Why are you living in that particular neighborhood? Why are you driving that particular car? Why do you like that particular sports team? Why? Asking down to a motivational level, getting down underneath to saying, why do you do the things that you do? The answer almost across the board is this, and it's deep, and you might want to write it down, okay? I don't know. So the same people who have the acute ability to know everyone else's motivation, to see them crystal clear, and to impugn judgment upon those individuals, has absolutely zero ability to know their own. Why did you do that? I don't know. Well, why did... I still remember when I was a kid. I did something. I stole a pack of... of it wasn't Juicy Fruit. It was the striped gum, the fruit striped gum. We were, it was a, a meat store, butcher shop in Cape Girardeau, and we got to go there every now and then, and we didn't have a lot of money growing up, and so it was a splurge, and we went, we got to go to the butcher shop, and that meant fresh cut bacon, that meant some fresh ground hamburger, that meant it was going to be good in the McCutcheon house, and I remember asking mom, saying, hey, can I have that gum? And she said, no, we don't have any more money. And I said, perfect. And I put it in my pocket, and I walked out with it. And I remember my dad asking me later, why did you take that? Mm -hmm. Why did you do that? I don't know. I can look back now and go, I know exactly why I did it. Because I was the center of the universe, and I didn't care what my mom and dad said. I wanted the dadgum gum. And I was going to take it. And who cares about the consequences? We act childish, basically, when we don't know our motivations. And we need to take some time, as Larry Crabb said one time, that we live unexamined lives in unexamined communities of faith. So what I'm encouraging you to do is consider yourself a little bit. Ask your motivations. Why do you do what you do? Or why don't you do uh, what you do? 
And the first motivation that John gives, because he says, I want you to understand why I'm calling you to love. And the motivation to love is this, the primary motivation for you to love one another, for you to have love as the primary characteristic of your life individually, uh, of your house, of your community. The reason and the motivating factor beyond it all is this, God is love. God is love. He said the primary motivation for those who follow God and who claim to be his children, the primary motivation for us to go out and to live in a way that expresses love is because he is love and that his love is the outflow. John Piper says things so much better than I do. And here's what Piper says about these verses. Look at verse 4 and uh, 4, 8 and then verse 4, 16. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then he says in 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Here's what Piper says. This is a massive claim. God is love. In a word, I think it means something like God's absolute fullness of life and truth and beauty and goodness and all other perfections is such that he is not only self-sufficient, but also in his very nature overflowing. God is so absolute, so perfect, so complete, so full, so inexhaustibly resourceful, so joyful, that he is by nature a giver, a worker for others, a helper, a protector. What it means to be God is to be full enough always to overflow and never to need, never murmur and never pout. God is love. The implications of this for the way we live are big. What he's saying is God is so full and knows who he is. And he is so filled with this love that it overflows from him. It is his very nature and characteristic. Therefore, it would follow. It should be the primary characteristic of those who claim his name. That we are so filled with him, that we are so filled with his love, that we are so filled that, that it is a natural overflow of our lives that love characterizes the Christian church. And so the question has to be, what's motivating you to love or not to love? Is the motivation to gain something back or is the motivation simply to say, I have been so fully loved by God and I am in him that it just naturally flows out of me? Or the reason why you don't show love, there's a reason why you don't. And oftentimes they're sinister and they're dark and we don't want to give assent to them. Maybe it's just because we're selfish. Maybe it's because we're petty. Maybe it's just because we want what we want when we want it. And we don't like verbalizing those things. But we need to know our motivations. The first thing here, as he says, is the motivation to love is that God is love. The second motivation that he gives us uh, for our motivation to love is the cross itself. He said God's love overflowed so much that the best way that he could figure out how to love his creation, how to love his children, was to send his son to us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others, for the brothers. That's 3.16. And in 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins big word there propitiation basically means the repelling uh, of our sins basically Christ's work his blood covers us and the wrath of God comes and it is repelled from us we're covered it's a similar word used in the old testament of the pitch that Noah put around the ark 
and that Moses' mother put around the basket. That pitch is the same Hebrew root in the word. It is basically saying that as the water of the flood and the water of the Nile were pictures of God's wrath, that propitiation, that covering around the ark and around the basket protected the one who was in it from God's judgment. You see that picture? What a great mental picture that the cross in Christ's love covers you so that the, that the wrath of God is turned away from you. And that then motivates us to be loving to others. Notice that, Paul, that John says that love doesn't begin with our love. It begins behind us. It begins beyond us. It, it begins in the beauty of the Trinity, in the beauty of that transaction. It doesn't start with us. We are a conduit of that. You're not the beginning point of it. And so he's saying the motivation that we have has to come not only from God's love, but that love so explicitly shown to us in the cross. And the final little motivation that he gives to us there, uh, the third sub-point if you're looking and trying to do that, this would be C, I guess, uh, is this, that loving others and loving in that way fulfills God's commands. That those who follow God say that we want to follow him and obey his commands. Well, what are his commands? He says, if you love others, then you're obeying my commands. If you do that, and he brings it together, look at this, it's amazing. He says in verse 3, 23 and 24, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus uh, Christ and love one another just as he commanded. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. Loving God and loving others are so tied together that they're inseparable. Too many people in the church today say, I love God but their lives don't show any love on a horizontal level. That there's no relationship here. And Paul is arguing and saying this, then you don't have love. You aren't fulfilling love because you can't say, I love God, but yet hate your neighbor, hate your brother, not care for those who are around you. He says those two, those are, that's a non sequitur. Those don't work together. They're mutually exclusive statements to say that I love God, but I don't love my brother. So then you don't really love God. You don't really understand what that means. That we say, if we want to love God, then it naturally flows from us to love one another. The motivations come from the beauty and the nature of who God is, from the cross and the work of that, and then finally in that it fulfills the love, uh, fulfills the law. Now, the second main point is this, uh, that love is the expression of our faith. Love is the expression of our faith, and I was beginning to touch on it there. But I'm going to jump to a couple of other passages, but look here. Without love, faith is dead. Look at Galatians 5, verse 6, or listen to it. Paul says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Faith working through love. This is verse means that love is the way faith expresses itself. Without love, faith is dead. It goes back to that thing of, I believe in Jesus, I have faith in Christ. He says, well, if you have faith in Christ and you have faith in Jesus and you love him in that way, then you have to love other people. And if you don't, listen to the second side of this. If you don't, I bring into question your primary claim. John doesn't hold back at all in this. He basically says, folks, if you are not loving one another, if you are not given as a tendency and a natural part of your life to love other people sacrificially in a way that is wounding to your own personhood, uh, that is sacrificial in the way, if that doesn't come from you, then he, John would stand here and he wouldn't tiptoe around it. He would basically say, then I question whether you're really a follower of Jesus Christ. And we would go, oh, 
John. Come on, you can't be that bold. You can't say that. I mean, I've come to church my whole life. I've given tons of money to the church. I've done all kinds of things. And John would go, but you hate your brother. Therefore, it negates and nullifies your previous claims. You won't forgive your spouse. You won't forgive your parents. You won't forgive the person who hurt you. Therefore, I would bring into question John and Paul would say, I wonder if you ever really got the gospel. You know the beauty of being a pastor? I didn't write the scriptures. I just tell you about it. So I can sit behind it and go, I didn't say that, folks. Don't get all upset with me. I don't want you coming to me this week and going, wow, McCutcheon, you really guilt-tripped us and beat us on the brow. I'm not, this gets me between the eyes pretty well myself. He says, so love, so works of love are the evidence of faith. Without them, a church is dead and a heart is dead. Look what John said in 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Wow. Where love is absent, faith is dead, and we are dead no matter whatever else is happening. That's what the angel at Sardis was saying in the book of Revelation. He said, you guys look so good on the outside. You got all the cool programs, you got the new buildings, you got all the stuff, you got it going on. People want to come to your church. But here's my problem with you you don't love. And therefore, I'm going to bring judgment on you. Folks, we need to make sure that all the other stuff that we do is important, but we need to love one another really well. And individually, this is a gut check. This should be a gut check for every single one of us to stop and go, I really don't love other people. Ooh, maybe. Maybe there's something wrong in my understanding of the gospel itself. That love is the expression of our faith. Paul says a couple of times, or John says a couple of times in here, that in verse 16 of chapter 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others, for the brothers. And then he says it again in verse 11 of the next chapter. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. What does the ought mean? Think about how you use ought. Well, you ought to do that. You, you ought to do this. And it's somehow a, an applied, I don't know, that we, we have to do something we don't really want to do. Well, you know, Bill, those people gave you a gift. You ought to write them a thank you note. I heard that one from the time I was this big. I'm terrible at it. And now I rebel. I can hear my mom. You know, Billy, people are going to think poorly of you and the family if you don't write that thank you note. You ought to do that. And as a wonderful, mature young man that I was, I was like, fine, I'll show you. And I didn't do it. Because I thought the ought was some outside thing that came in. What John is saying, the ought that you ought to do this. If you've loved God, been loved by God, abide in him, it is like this. The fish ought to swim in the sea. The birds ought to fly in the air. The horses ought to run in the meadow because that's their nature. That is the expression of the nature of who they are. It comes out naturally. You don't have to look at a fish and go, you know what, you might ought to get there in the water. You might want to do that or to a bird. You ought to learn how to fly. It comes out in a way that Paul and John mean here is saying, we ought to love in this way. It is who we are. 
It's our very nature for us. And some people would say it's second nature. That's not right. I remember practicing different things, and some of you are good golfers, and, and so you'd want to swing, and you want to work on your swing, and you want to do that, and some of the language you use is you want it to become like a second nature to you. God's love in us and our love for him and others is not a second nature. It is our nature. It is our primary nature to do that. That is what comes naturally from us. We shouldn't be having to sort of force it out and squeeze it out to go, got to be loving today. Dad, gum it. I don't want to be loving today. God says, it's who you are. Actually, if that's my reaction to people, that's exposing something massive about me. And I need to take a moment to pause and to not just schluff it off as I'm having a bad day or you're having a bad day or whatever, but to pause and to go, wow, what is going on? What's happened to the wiring here? What's the thinking happening behind this? What is going on? Because love for one another is a natural outgrowth of the Christian church to us. And then the last couple of things. Love is more than words. Love is more than words. Look at chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, he does, he, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's huge for us. What we talk about within our church philosophy uh, in mission, ministry and in vision and values is that we want to love in word and deed. It's what the apostles said. I could give you a coat and I could give you some money and I could do that, but what I really have to give you is the love of Jesus Christ because you're going to get cold again and you're going to get hungry again and I'm going to take care of that, but I'm going to also give you the word of God. And so they brought both things together. The work of the Spirit working in the, in the New Testament church was this. It wasn't just the apostles preaching the word. But in Acts chapter 7, a bunch of the Greek widows came and they said, hey, this is all great what you're talking about, this love of Jesus, and it's wonderful, and, and we get it, and we want to be part of the kingdom, but we're starving to death. Because the current social structure and the system of the day there had nothing to do with, one, a foreign woman, but a foreign woman widow. There was no place for her to be fed. There was no place for her to go and to find sustenance. So she came to the church and she said of the church, you're preaching some really good stuff. Let me see if your preaching is valid. I'm hungry. I need new clothes. I need a place to live. And the apostles said what? Love Jesus, you get heaven at the end of the day. They looked over and they said, Stephen, you and other men we are setting you apart to a distinct office within the church called that of deacon. And your role is to serve the physical and felt needs along with the spiritual needs of anyone within the body of Christ. And that's our call. That what we do with the, if you want to know our motivation for the bumper crop, you think it's so we can say, hey, 82 bags, we're a good church. I hope not. I hope our motivation is that our hearts break because there are people in this community Hilton Head and Bluffton, who are hungry. And for us to simply say, hey, come to our church and hear about Jesus and sing some great songs isn't enough. But we have to say, indeed, as well. It's a similar way in your lives with one another. It's not good enough to just say, hey, I love you. But you also have to say, here's how I love you. 
I'm going to care for your needs. I'm going to minister to your needs. Imagine if Jim and Kay Buck were here. Are they here this morning? Are they able to be here? Jim and Kay? No. Jim has a progressive brain cancer, and he's not able to get out. And Kay has to care for him and still make money to provide for them. And their son, who loves them deeply, drives down every week to come and to sit with his father so that his mom can go out and work. And some of the folks in this church got what we're talking about. And they've said, hey, what we're going to do is one day a week, we're going to fill the time slots and we're going to go sit with Jim and we're going to love him in such a way that allows Kay to go out and work and provide for her family. It's not enough for us to say to Jim and Kay, hey, we love you. We're praying for you. But isn't that what we normally do? Hey, I'll pray for you. Well, I don't want you necessarily to pray for me. I need, you to, I need you to engage. I need you to step in. I need you to get some action behind that. I, I appreciate the prayers is what they would say and others would say, but I need you to come and be with me. I need you to come and love me. We've got a lot of new moms and young families in the church, and there's a lot of us who have a lot of time. And you know what is so precious and needed by young couples who have little kids? You know what it is? A date. And someone to take care of their kids. And so wouldn't it be awesome for us to say to these young couples, we have made vows to you as you baptized your children that we would help you raise your children in the love and admonition of the Lord and support you in your parenting there. Wouldn't it be great for our church to come along all these young parents and say to them, we'll take your kids tonight. You guys go out. And money might be tight, so if we've got it, I'll give you 20 bucks. You guys go get a cup of coffee and not worry about your kids. We got your kids tonight. Do you think that would express the love of Christ powerfully to that family? amazing. A friend of mine has a church in Charlotte, and they have a bunch of mechanics in their church. These guys love, they're motorheads, they, they love to work on motors and cars, and so what they decided to do was they went and they petitioned the church, and they said to the church leaders, hey, we've got a lot of property, can we just take this little piece of property, this one little part over here, and can we build a garage on it? And this garage is going to be explicitly used on Saturday mornings for widows, for older women, uh, and for single moms. And we're just going to fix their cars just for free. Is that okay? That church can't keep people out of it. My friend Todd Hahn's the pastor. And you know why? Because he's a great preacher and he's good. Because he's a Chapel Hill grad, which puts him on another level. That's awesome too. Um, but no, the reason is people go to that church and Todd preaches, hey, we want to tell you about Jesus Christ and the love of Christ. And here's what it is. And he explains the gospel. And then he says this. And by the way, some of you may have some needs. If your car needs fixing, Saturday morning's free if you're a single mom. Oh, you've got some financial needs in your church and you don't know how to manage. We've got lots of men and women in our church who know finances. And they will, prov- they will provide for you free of charge. They will provide for you financial counseling. We'll help you get out of debt. We're not going to pay for it, but we'll help you restructure your budget. We'll help take care of your kids. We'll help in your marriage. We'll help do this because love has action to it. So for our church, we need to ask those questions. How are we showing the love of God? If it's motivated out of us because of God's love for us, how is it coming out? And the question then becomes, remember, if we don't love others, it really challenges whether or not we really love God. There is no Ebenezer Scrooge. There's no bah humbug in the Christian church. That's unacceptable. And I'm sorry, and I don't mean to offend some, but it is not generational. Because your parents grew up in the Depression does not allow us the right to not be generous and kind and love others. 
because we had a hard time when we were younger uh, in our homes and our fathers didn't show us affection the way maybe they could have or should have. That does not give me the freedom to say to somebody else, I can't love you because I wasn't loved by my dad well. You see, this, it just blows us away because the love of God comes in and through the cross and it obliterates everything and just blows out and gives us entirely new categories, entirely new motivations, and an entirely new power source in order to go out and, and to do these things. So we go out and we show the world that it is more than words. And we offer the world, here's another, the, the last point, we offer the world an alternative way to relate. We offer the world an alternative way to relate. When the world, let me ask you this question. When the world looks at our church, when the world looks at our church, does it see a love that is only possible because of the presence of the Holy Spirit? Or is what we do attainable by any secularist, uh, any person who hates God? Is it, is it the same? We are offering the world an alternative way to relate to one another. That's why, folks, the scriptures are so overwhelming. When Paul says, please, if you're going to sue one another, I'd rather you not sue one another. But if you're going to have a business dispute, don't go to the pagan courts. Don't allow them to see, see, there's nothing special about those people. They sue each other just like any pagan would. That's why God says, I hate divorce, and I understand that many of you have been divorced, and others of you are in the midst of it, and he's not saying you're condemned to hell if you get divorced, but he's saying this, God hates it, because the beauty of the gospel is this, it can overcome anything, and wouldn't it be awesome that the statistics within the church blow away the statistics somewhere else? I was amazed to hear that 67% of second marriages fail within seven years. And so often people are going, and people come to my office in that, and basically what they're asking is this, is my conscience clear? And the scripture does give us freedom to be divorced. So I wanna, I'm probably going to get lost on this because I'm trying to caveat it too much so I don't get blown away later this week. But the point, what I'm saying is, but what I want to ask people is simply this. If you understand how much you've been loved and forgiven in Christ, you have the freedom to go get divorced, but you don't have to. You don't have to. If you're a victim of abuse because of the love of God in Christ to you, you can actually even love that abuser because of the power of the cross in your life. Now, the world would say, absolutely, you can't. There's no way. But do we offer an alternative to the world that can only be understood as the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst? I'm seeing it happen, guys. I'm seeing great things happen within our church. I'm seeing folks who had disputes come together and sit down in front of one another and walk through it and extend forgiveness and be made right together. Guys, that doesn't happen. I'm seeing marriages fighting to stay together and saying, we want to do this. We want to do this because of the beauty of the gospel. I'm seeing things happen in our midst, and I hope you can see them as well, that God is doing some incredible things here. And I hope our church continues to be a place that people can come and go, you guys have something that I'm not offered anywhere else. So, final thought. I think I've said that three times, haven't I? Is this even possible? Is this just pie in the sky by and by? Boy, it sounds good, doesn't it? Is it tough to love people? Anybody have trouble loving others? 
I, I'd really love to see a hand because I'm feeling very alone right now. So, yeah, it's tough to love other people. And there are situations when you look and you go, there's no way. There's no way, God, you are asking me to do something that is beyond my capacity to do. You're asking me to go past where I can go, God. You're asking me to come out of my pain. You're asking me to come out of a held position that I've held all my life. And you're asking me to come out into light, and I'm terrified of the light. God, I don't think this is possible. I want to encourage you, it is possible, or John would never have made the claim. God is saying, I dwell in you. The third person of the Trinity has taken up residence in you. The very one who raised Christ from the dead, who overcame the grave, who has given us all things in him, is saying, now I can do immeasurably more than you even thought or imagined. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? Do you understand it enough? Have you let it just wash over you? So if you're having trouble loving, Here's your homework, okay? And it doesn't have do's and don'ts. It's very, very simple. Go stare at the cross. And I don't mean a physical cross. If that helps you, fine. But go contemplate the cross. Go contemplate the source of love. Go contemplate the fact that it should have been you on that cross. Go contemplate the fact that Christ willingly went there for you and let it so overwhelm you and overwhelm you. And when you begin to doubt it again, go back to it and let it overwhelm you. And you will begin to see these things beginning to happen. You will become a more loving person. Listen to Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and goodness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us Uh, his precious and very great promises so that through them we become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire do you hear that if you're here and wondering what christianity is all about you get to partake of the very nature the divine nature itself through the completed work of christ he says you are this now he says for this reason because these things have happened Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to see those things grow in your life? Let's try that again. Do you want to see those things grow in your life? Hmm, well, Do you want to be effective in your life and in your ministry? Yeah, I do. Do you want to see fruit born out of your life and your ministry? Yeah. Are you seeing it fully now? Some of us, no, not so much. Well, the question then becomes, what do I do? Well, here it is. You want to know what you need to do? Work harder, folks. Get at it. You're slackers. Start working more. No, of course it's not that. That's not what Peter's saying. He said, if you want to see this, you want to see effectiveness, you want to see growth, especially, remember the end one there was love? He said, here's how you do it. He said, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has has cleansed from his former sins. Do you want to know the key to becoming a more loving person and a virtuous person and a patient person and a righteous person and all that? You want to know the key? Remember the gospel. Stare at it. Preach it to your heart today say I was dead in my sins and trespasses but God rich in mercy made me alive with Christ 
not because of anything that I've done, but because of his rich love for me. And the things that I have done and the things that I will continue to do should damn me to hell forever, but his great love sustains me. And therefore, I can love you. And you can love me if we keep going back to that cross. So let's go there regularly together. Let's pray. God, we're such workers. We want to-do lists and schedules and plans. And the gospel's different from that. It says, just come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me and sit with me. Come and let me dine with you. Open the door of your heart so that I can come and be with you and encourage you in that way. Just be with me so that my presence in your life will so overwhelm you that you will become who you were designed to be. Fully human, able to love in a way that the world has no clue about, but with the privilege of showing them the source of your love. God, help us as a church today to be loving because we've first been loved. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing and celebrate.